Episode 2 of Satanicast 5000 is brought to you by our sponsors, Anchor.fm, the easiest way to connect with and create your own podcast. Everything you need, 100% free. Download the Anchor app from the App Store and begin connecting today. Kiskadee Coffee Company, located at 18 Main Street, Plymouth, Massachusetts, America's hometown. Delicious handmade pastries, delicacies, and confections, along with mouth-watering savories, are available, along with brewed coffee, espresso, cappuccino, fruit juices, and frozen drinks. Check out their online menu and store at menupix.com. Sataticast 5000 is a production of Funko Family Entertainment, formerly known as Inner Circle Illuminati Incorporated, the same people who have run society during such classic historical events as the Spanish Inquisition, the London Fire of 1666, and the first human being to eat 15 jars of mayonnaise in one minute in 2019. Thank you for listening. Hello, boys and girls. It's time once again for Satanicast 5000, the greatest podcast ever made in the history of podcasts, and I don't say that too lightly. Uh, joined by Dave the Owl, but Dave the Owl is court-ordered to stay 25 feet away from me from the brutal attack uh, as seen on Facebook, uh, I documented, uh, by the courts, um, and Dave is not near a microphone. You're in time, pal. okay? You, not the owl behind you, you. Anyways, today's episode, Subversion in Animation. Um, We all know what subversion is. That's the sort of uh, going against the established um, order of things um, and undermining it. And how is that surfacing in animation? Well, if you are anything like me, um, hopefully you're you're a little bit like me, because otherwise you wouldn't be on El Stanico. Um, your first experiences with animation came when you were a child, and I'm talking five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, something like that. And the first cartoon that I went to see that was actually uh, a movie was called The Fox and the Hound. And um, when I went to see that, I went to see it with my mom, and it was, it was probably about 83, 84, 85, something like that, maybe even before, the, maybe 81. And it was very upsetting to me because the fox and the hound couldn't be friends in the end and I cried so hard that I made other people in the movie theater cry as well yes it's very sad but uh, the fox and the hound was not like a traditional type of cartoon where there was you know a happy ending well it was a sort of happy ending they acknowledged each other and the hound didn't kill the fox when his hunter guy or whatever ordered him to so um that's good but it really it it was the first cartoon for me that evoked an extremely strong reaction now i'm not going to talk about um disney or warner brothers we we get into a little mgm later on when rob coon joins us um but the cartoons and the animation that i'm talking about um are really the ones that sort of um they don't follow the the typical set of expectations um, that you would get from a cartoon like you started watching when you were a kid. Um, the first sort of animated feature, I think, that really kind of 
didn't fall into the entertaining children and making people laugh type of thing was probably the Fritz the Cat cartoons um, earlier in the, the 20th century. And those of you who are unfamiliar with Fritz the Cat, Fritz the Cat was basically pornography in the form of cartoon. Um, and Fritz the Cat was a bit of a, of a, of a, of a lecherous individual. But over the years, there's been um, animated features, cartoons that haven't really um, conformed to like what the expectation is for, like I said, entertaining children and that sort of thing. Um, a few weeks ago, I tried to uh, play the movie Heavy Metal, and I ended up with a Spanish version of that um, that feature, which pissed me off to no end, and everybody who was present saw me melt down in real time, or saw my chat window melt down in real time as I tried to find a version of it. I figured we ended up watching anyways. But Heavy Metal is a perfect example of that because of that subversion, because it's basically a series of stories that aren't necessarily... Um, you know, what you would expect, even from a science fiction cartoon. The first story in that movie is about a taxi driver who ends up coming into $300,000 or 300,000 credits or whatever the hell the, the form of currency is in the heavy metal future. And, of course, there's nudity and he bangs this, this um, um, the daughter of the archaeologist that found the Loch Ness, which is this green ball of evil. And the common thread throughout that entire um, movie is this, this, this ball of evil. That movie culminates in the story of um, the sort of like Jesus-like figure, but it's turned on its end because this Jesus-like figure that um, rescues, or the Messiah-type individual, um, that rescues basically um, you know society and earth and all that stuff from the evil of the Loch Ness is a woman. And I think that there's a very strong streak of feminism through that um, and, and validation as far as that goes because typically it's, you know, well, I'll put you this way. In the beginning of the movie, it's, um, um, there's, a, there's a short with John Candy playing the voice of uh, Den. And you would think that Den would be, you know, the big hero and all that stuff, but he ends up just being, he's just a kid from another, from Earth, and he's sort of immature, and he just, he's basically like, oh, yeah, well, I guess I'll save the day and, you know, have sex with three women, two women, whatever it is, in this, and that's it. And nothing really comes of it. But the true hero of the entire movie is <clears throat> the little girl who the Loch Ness initially starts recanting all these, um, all these stories too. So, um, for me, that that was really kind of one of the first movies that I that changed my expectations about um, what animation and what cartoons could be. I saw that when I was fourteen or fifteen, and yes, it was probably inappropriate for a fourteen or fifteen year old kid to watch a movie like that. But um, I mean, come on. Anyways, so we have a lot more to talk about. Um, Rob Coon's going to be here in a couple more minutes, and uh, we're going to talk about all types of animation. Um, our favorites, our least favorites um, that fall into this category, and so it's it's going to be a great discussion. Um, the one other thing that I do want to add before we, we go to our first commercial break is that we have seven more episodes of Satanicast 5000 coming up, and I just want to make sure to thank all of you for listening. Um, El Satanico has come quite a long way in the past um you know, two, three weeks, and I'm very happy and very excited about that, and I'm happy you're here with me. So, um, again, kudos, and uh, let's 
kick it off to uh, Anchor.fm. We'll pay our bills, and then uh, we'll be back with Rob Kuhn. Thanks for joining us. Satanicast. 5,000. Hi, folks. This is Stephanie Quigley. I'm here to talk to you today about Anchor FM, the easiest way to make a podcast. It's so easy, even Wally can do it. Ha! <laughs> Seriously, though, it's pretty simple. First, download the Anchor app from the App Store, or you can go to Anchor FM on the web. Then create an account with a valid email address, or your Facebook or Google login, and you're off to the races. But wait, there's more. Anchor provides you with free tools to make your podcast, such as background music, intervals between segments, phone-in interview function where you can record guests when they can't be in the studio with you, which is especially important right now, given this unique time in the world today. Plus, Anchor automatically publishes your podcast to a number of different sites, including Spotify, ooh, and Apple Podcasts, ah. So what are you waiting for? Download the Anchor app, the easiest way to make a podcast, and begin connecting today. Okay, and we are back to Satanicast 5000 from that message for Anchor.fm. We do have to pay the bills on this podcast. So our very first guest on Satanicast 5000. He is a very good friend of mine. He's a graduate of Wentworth Institute of Technology, which is actually a pretty fancy pants school up here in the Northeast. He's been an architectural project manager since 1994. I've known him for quite some time. He's a very good friend. He's an admin on El Satanico. So talented. Mr. Rob Kuhn. Rob, thank you for being on the podcast. And the crowd goes wild. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Hello, Yes. So, um, you know, like I said, Rob has been, is an admin on the website, and um, we recently just went through a boom of membership, um, and it seems like our spot's blowing up. So, Rob, first of all, before we get into the animation, thanks for your help with everything with the website. I want to make sure I get that out of the way. Uh, so, we, go ahead. Nope. I thought you asked me something. Sorry. Go ahead, please. So, the first thing I was wanted to talk about with you was our, our favorite... Um, our favorite subversive um, animated features um, that we wanted to, you know, kind of point to in case um, we have some listeners that aren't really super familiar with um, animation, cartoons, anime, that sort of thing. Because um, what we try to do with El Satanico is, is appeal to a number of different sort of genres and bases and not necessarily just horror or science fiction or cult movies, but, you know, I really wanted to, you know, incorporate things like, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I tried to play heavy metal. It was the Spanish version of that cartoon, much to my chagrin, <laughs> but it's, it, I know it's, it's just that kind of, um, that kind of animation that I wanted to sort of focus on. Sure. So did, so did you have a, uh, like a, a favorite animation or cartoon or, or brand or something like that that you wanted to kick this off with? Well, I, I, my my nerdery goes way way back. I mean, I was a big I was a fan of giant fighting robots since I was a since I was a young kid. Um, you know, anything you know, and we all watched Saturday morning cartoons, and they were good to some extent and bad to some extent. But my very early my my first love of 
both Saturday morning cartoons and big robots. And I looked for the name today and I can't find it, but it was one of those. It was very neon. It was very fly. This is what I remember. I think I was probably 10 or 12, but it was very neon and very flashy. And it was five robots that combined into one great big robot and they saved the galaxy. And I would have to, I, I would need to spend hours more looking this up. Uh, was it? It was. It wasn't Voltron, was it? No, it was very, very similar to Voltron. It was um, like the robot. I mean, the robots had you know there was a skinny robot that was that was uh, that was very C three PO ish. There was a big robot. There was a leader robot. There was a kind of a normal robot. And there were genders. <laughs> they played with. I, I and they combined into a great big robot. And this thing may have lasted two seasons, but I remember specifically. That at one point these guys, these five robots, wanted to become better than the sum of their that their that their creator made them, and their creator was one of the guys that drove the robots from the inside with another robot. And so, and I and I <laughs> that's too many this. robots. Was that? That's too many robots. It was. It was a lot of robots, yeah. and they wanted to be so they so they didn't they they didn't betray him but they kind of went off and says well you know what we have one purpose here and we want to show dad how well we do without him and they almost got themselves killed and then dad came in the, the you know the creator came in and I, I, I if you give me if you give me 10 out another 10 hours i'll never find the name of this thing but i remember being so very very cool at that age and that's one of the things that kind of started me into like anime and um uh, kind of made me start to pay attention to plots like later, like I was into the Herculoids and all those Saturday morning cartoons and they were science fiction and they were, and, and I dug all those old Hanna-Barbera cartoons when they really started to kind of branch out past the Simpsons, I'm sorry, not the Simpsons, the Flintstones and Tom and Jerry cartoons and that type of thing. I mean, I was also into right. Tom and Jerry cartoons, but. Um, right. Well, what you're, what you're kind of talking about is probably you know one of the first attempts or forays or uh whatever you want to call it into you know i guess like serious like drawn out narratives and i'm not talking about like movies like because you know obviously like again i don't want to talk about the disney's and all that stuff mm -hmm. because they had been doing feature films for 50 or 60 years but That's like anime correct. series like like well, like one that comes to mind for me is um star blazers which was on oh i was getting um, to that yeah, so Star Blazers um, here in uh, Massachusetts was on Channel Twenty Five in the afternoon, and it was this 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 basically protracted narrative about um, you know humanity's last ditch attempt to try to save their planet. And I remember watching it, and the one thing that I was always would look for at the end of the at the end of the show was you know how many days to Earth they had left. That was, was fascinating. That absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And it was, it, I mean, in one sense, it was kind of, um, it was reminiscent of uh, Starship Troopers, um, Robert Heinlein's um, novel um, that I think he published in the 20s or the 30s, where it was kind of like a militarized type of look at how, um, how human society would survive attack from, you know, from an, from an alien source. But Star at the same time, was I, epic to a lot of, for a lot of things for something based that early, uh, that early on, because it wasn't right. new when it came, it was out for five or six years in Japan before it came here, obviously, because it was anime. Um, but that was, that was the first, that was one of the first long form because those episodes, they were like 
40 or 30 or 40 of those episodes in season one and they have like the four yeah. seasons you know yeah. because you know we defeated the we defeated the tall blonde blue hair uh blonde haired toe-haired blue guy whose name escapes <laughs> me but um did you ever see the semi-recent anime of that movie of, of that story? um you know honestly like i i i feel like i don't give enough um deference to that particular subgenre of of animation is anime yeah um that sort of thing because it just because i i I mean i i liked it as a kid and i liked it you know when it was on channel 25 you know way back in the day but for whatever reason um just from my own personal tastes and i'll i'll get to it in a second because i always geared towards the just the straight weird um and not necessarily um you know, say, I mean, obviously the the extended plots and the narratives and all that stuff were 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 great, and I think that that's was a big step forward for animation. But for me, um, when when Ren and Stimpy dropped when we were in high school, that sort of was a big game changer for me. But but finish your point about anime, and then we'll we'll talk. Well, about it kind of that kind of led into. I mean, not so much. I didn't want to digress into anime, but that was kind of the. Now all of a sudden I'm 13 or 14 years old, and if I'm not home before 3:30 or 4, I think it was, to watch Star Blazers and then Force Five, which yep, Force Five was five days of. Let me see. What they had to there were there had to be 12 robots in different in, in those five different series. Like there was one. Yeah. So all of a sudden, long form narrow, uh, long form storytelling was right up my alley, and I just so geeked out about that shit. Um, yep. And this is, you know, this is me twelve or fourteen, and I remember how happy I was when I remember I remember the finale, the the second or third episode from the finale was the. Can I swear in this podcast? You sure can. I remember swear away, fucking ain't right. I remember the second or third episodes from the finale of season one when they when the humans were winning and just blowing up the planet from the inside, and I never felt more scared. Well, that's not true. I mean, John Carpenter is the thing still freaks me out to this day, but I was legit <laughs> scared that they were on the precipice of winning a war that wiped out humanity basically like 85 percent of humanity like they had staggering numbers yeah and you're just like they, they can still they, they're in the middle of a planet they're blowing up the planet for the inside what how are they going to get out of this you know and i was like <laughs> yep and i and you know when that came you know season two season three but they would replay season one again and i would watch the finale and i wasn't scared i was like i know they're going to win this this is the, kind of the greatest thing ever yeah. So I've never really yeah, lost. I mean, I've never really lost anime, but then I start around that time I started reading superheroes, comic books, and so you know that kind of leads me into one of my into 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 my kind of all time favorite animation. It's not it's not subversive. It's not um, it, it's not from a small production house. It was it was. Uh, 2004 to probably 2007 or so. Okay. Tim, who had done Batman the Animated Series, which I was a fan of, but not a super fan of. I just, um, he did 
Justice League, and then he did Justice League Unlimited, and it okay. every ever every other episode of that show blew my goddamn mind. The pinnacle at the end of this, and, and again, it was long form storytelling, and you didn't realize it was that was. See, now I'll go back to that. That was subversive. Like you didn't realize that they were building to a crescendo at the end, you know, until because some it's like every there were uh, there was a portion of that show that had nothing to do with the overall plot and it didn't tie the things together until probably the fifth episode from the end and all the superheroes batman superman wonder woman the flash all of them looked around and went oh shit this is all brainiac or oh shit this is the big bad and this is what's happening and then there was a big explosion and brainiac ship came up and but it it really really subverted that and then they went into outer space and then apocalypse got involved. And I just, it was just, it was amazing how they did that. And they built to the crescendo where um, Tim Daly as Superman walks up to apocalypse and says, you know, I don't really get a chance to cut loose on earth because I'll kill everybody. But out here in space, big boy, you can take a punch. And I and I lost my shit. He said something to that effect, and I just lost my shit. And this is 2008. Right, it was right. astounding to me that all of a sudden, Superman was a little not nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's basically you have this sort of idea built up of Superman where he's like truth, justice, and the American way, and he's this sort of he's got this image built up through whatever 50 60 years and, of but no one's watching and him TV in shows and all that stuff but then right but then he's you know he comes off as kind of a dick and he lets loose on apocalypse but he doesn't so, but it's no, not no. that he comes off as a dick he's like oh i have to defeat the big bad because let's say batman's gonna throw a batarang and it's gonna bounce off of him and then wonder woman's going to you know wonder woman is not going to do a damn thing and i'm not Sound, that made me sound like a like a like a like a troglodyte there. But let's face it, she's the queen of the Amazons, but she's no match for Superman, right? You know, I mean, Apocalypse. nobody really is. I mean, Tim, you know, so that was one that that was kind of one of my. And every time that's on, I watch it a little bit. And I'm just I, I'm stunned by how much by how good that plot line is, and it mimicked comics, which was really really cool. And DC is trying to try to do a little bit of that with their animation and their production. They kind of they they do it, it to varying degrees of success, in my opinion. But right, so that's kind of so, that's that's really my all time favorite. And, and I loved the first season of um of Young Justice, the first two seasons of Young Justice. And I love, I still watch anime to this day. If I you know usually Adult Swim is where I watch all that, but you know, it's, right. And speaking. Speaking of Adult Swim, now I, I wanted to get into to basically their sort of contribution towards um, basically animation over the course of the past 20 years because Adult Swim has actually been around for a lot longer than people sort of realize. Yeah. And, um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, like Ren and Stimpy was, was a big one for me because here was a cartoon that reveled in being absolutely gross um, you know, with the, the close-up shots of um, nose goblins, uh, yep. which was basically on the underside of a desk, and it was all of Stimpy's snot. Um, 
to the sort of heavy innuendo that Ren and Stimpy had a um, had a like had a homosexual relationship because of the way they spoke to each other. There was one episode where uh, Ren was yeah, where Ren was sick and uh, Stimpy gave him a sponge bath and that sort of thing. And so it was like I don't think it was something that people were really prepared for, um, oh, no. especially given like what was what was currently the the milieu at the time where cartoons especially ones that appeared on major networks and that's i think ren and stimpy sort of kicked off adult swim even though it wasn't on the cartoon network um weren't they it it was and that's the bizarre part about it because it was on a network that um was very very safe and very very corporatized and then for some reason it managed to make its way onto nickelodeon late nights at like 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock so when people flipped over to that station and they saw ren losing his mind on a spaceship going space madness they were like what the fuck is this and and, and i was hooked I, i i didn't see that probably until three years after it after it came out and a friend of mine and a friend of mine was a huge fan and we were Sitting around three in the morning, half in the bag, and and this came on, and I was just like, I need to watch all of this. You know? yeah. and it was one of those things. Yeah. If you had videotapes, that you exchanged the videotapes, and you know, you got collateral. <laughs> right, and then it was. I mean, it wasn't just the content too, but the animation style by John Crick Falusi was was just the the sort of the exaggerated shapes um, and the way that it was sort of animated. I think was. At first, it's very difficult to watch because it's not the the shapes of the characters and the shapes of the the um, you know the 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 animation was different. It wasn't squares and circles and all that stuff rounded into forming characters, but it was like a lot of wavy lines and a lot of long lines. And I think that um, it was definitely unique. Yeah, well, yes, he and he did a lot of hand drawing on that, like. There, was, true. there wasn't a whole lot of, like, if you watch the Flintstones, like, there's, you know, they reuse the same animation show, animation cells that Fred and Barney are just running down the street. You didn't see a whole right. lot of that in, in, in Ren and Stimpy. And to better my point, all of their backgrounds were painted. Yeah. Like, yep. And that's something that came back. Like, it wasn't just, it wasn't just drawn on a sheet. It was painted with a brush, and then and that's not something you that's not something you saw for a long time. And all of a sudden, there are these super detailed. To your point, there are circles. There, there, there are things that you don't usually see in animators use. And all of a sudden, there the, the backgrounds of these of these things are just are just killing. Like, and it was it, it was it also captured a time that John felt comfortable in because everything was 1973 and a half like everything 1973.5 it was everything and he was probably i don't know 12 or 13 when that happened but he has a super clear image of what that time was like the powdered toast man sketch that kitchen is 1973 the music yeah. Oh, yeah, with the olive green and yeah, avocado mm-hmm. green, bright, uh, 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 there's lots of pinks, just uh, amazing color schemes that were, yep. that were real. And all of that was painted. <laughs> right. And, and it's like the, um, and I'll give you the, one better. The music was 1973. <laughs> I mean, it, it, Oh yeah, absolutely. The music it's like, it's stuff, basically from like a, it's like from a uh, commercial for, um, 
and you know like like you were just mentioning like the you know powdered toast man but like i remember um the log cartoon uh the the log commercial for the toy it's, it's like basically something that was on like a night yeah it was like on uh 1970 saturday morning cartoons that you would see right after the herculoids or whatever you know what i'm saying and it was so. stunning for that time because this is 15 years easy since that since that music was considered kitschy and the charm had long passed like this was you know we had been through the 80s and we were into grunge now and all of a sudden somebody's injecting 1973 and a half into you know grunge and metal culture and you're just like what the fuck is this you know and you just can't get those songs out of your head again it's big it's heavy it's wood <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> i know now i'm going to be singing that goddamn song all night long um, <laughs> so and then so we had Red and Stimpy and then you know of course adult swim rolled around on the cartoon network and i think that um, you wouldn't have Adult Swim if it wasn't for Ren and Stimpy because basically you had Nickelodeon, um, which again was like the the super safe network. I mean, it wasn't just cartoons; it was like you know kid shows and all of that stuff. And then they play Ren and Stimpy at eleven eleven thirty, and Cartoon Network at the time was still trying to find its footing and try to sustain an audience. They had um, cartoons, but they didn't know right. how to capture anybody. Right. Well, it's. I mean, they had an audience for certain times of the day, but they didn't have an audience for 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, et cetera, et cetera, because little kids are in bed. So that's where kind of adult swim comes from. And you have basically this open forum, which was fantastic because you had all these different sort of things pop up like space ghost coast to coast and C lab 2021 and the venture brothers. And the one that I'm really wanting to get to because it is absolutely 100% one of my favorite cartoons of all time. And that is Aqua Teen fucking Hunger Force. Yep. And I still watch those episodes like over and over again. They're still hilarious to me. It is by far the most poorly animated. <laughs> all of those old ones is. are. C lab 2020 is no miracle of animation. Um, no, Venture, Bro- Venture it- Brothers was a was a was a light year ahead of anything else that was on that network at the time. Both it still is. It animation still is. and um and, and pop culture references, which is really what I kind of watch it for now. But uh, when it, whenever it's on, um, but yeah, I mean, it was a, that was that was a that was a quantum leap in front of anything that was else was on there. And I never really was. I was I liked Aqua Teen Hunger Force. I just didn't. There were some episodes that really turned me off on that. Like I didn't matter the, the. I can't remember specifically which one I did not. I, I didn't like against Army Off, but it was on. I watched it and I enjoyed it, but I just never. Like I set my DVR for the Venture Brothers to record every single episode. I didn't do that with. I didn't do that with, AT, with Aqua Team. You know, just never felt the need. Yeah. So I mean, Aqua Team Hunger Force based on what was kind of put into it and you know what it was about got way more mileage out of it than it, they probably should have. You had t-shirts, they got a movie out of it. And those are very, very memorable characters. And then of course, and this is specific to Boston and Massachusetts, there was the bomb scare that we had in, Ooh. I think it was 2002. Yes, it was. Where I, I think you're right about that. I may, I, I remember being old was, enough. I remember being old enough to understand what happened and real and asking the cops, look, do you have any young recruits in there that knows what this thing is? And I mean, 
Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to give the cops some credit. I'm going to give the cops a little bit of credit here. It was they did their job. They they thought it was a bomb, and they and for all they knew, until they get this thing that looks like the the Moonanites and the men not the Mennonites. So that's a religious sect. Uh, <laughs> let's call them the Mennonites because it's funnier. When they get the you know when they see this this they have these guys are too old to know what that is. And they think it's a bomb. Um, it was a light bright. Huh? It was a light yes, bright. Yes, it was a light bright. But it was called it as a bomb. And the old geezers on the Boston Force did their job and looked around and said, what young per- what young punks did this? And they had a whole press conference on that. In the meantime, right. I'm, I remember right. being old enough to be to say, hey, you know, maybe I shouldn't be watching these cartoons. But do you have any young guys in the Force that like to get drunk with their friends on Saturday nights? And watch six yeah. or seven of these cartoons, you know. Well, I they figured it out pretty quickly. So for those of you at, at home, um, and and who might be oh, who, who don't recall this or whatever, um, in two thousand two, and this was right at the the height of Aqua Teen Hunger Force's popularity, um, and this was actually three years after, of course, nine eleven. Um, there was a there was a very large bomb scare in the city of Boston. Now I lived in Sullivan Square at the time, and that was right, and that's in Somerville, um, Somerville. In case anybody wanted to hear a Boston accent while they were here, yeah. um, it it was literally um, maybe about a half a mile away from where I oh, lived. Wow. And okay. essentially, what happened was a kid um, hooked up or pro- like programmed or whatever, rigged up a light bright that um, basically had one of the Moonanites, um, Ignignoct is the character, um, giving Bar, everybody yeah. the finger. Yep, and giving everybody the finger. So not knowing what it was and, and given sort of like what the circumstances were in, in Boston at the time, it, they thought that it might be a bomb. So basically Sullivan Square is pretty close to downtown Boston and is on a major um, uh, subway route into the city. So shutting that down caused a, a pretty big stink um in the city the kid was arrested i think he got a slap on the wrist because what? i think the police sort of feel that sort of once they realized what it was they felt kind of foolish about the whole thing i'm sure everyone kind of felt foolish but given the circumstances of what um what, what was going on in boston at the time um that was kind of it so there three um, of these things like there there, there was one more yeah, there were there were a couple of them, but I, I don't um, I don't I don't recall how many, but I do remember the whole stink that came up around it, and I remember just being right down the street from it, and I it it was funny because I had the day off, so I was like, eh, I'm gonna go get some beer. But anyways, um, so for that's great, and that's gonna be the end of the segment. Um, we're running a little bit long, Rob, so we have to we have to pay the bills. So I'm going to send it off to um, uh, 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 an ad for Kiskadee Coffee. Kiskadee Coffee is in Plymouth, Massachusetts, speaking of Massachusetts. Um, and we want to make sure that we support local businesses and restaurants, especially during this time of uh, COVID-19. A lot of that industry is suffering quite a bit. So uh, let's hear about that. And then we'll be back with Rob Kuhn. Thank you so much. This is Satanicast. Satanicast 2000. I'm doing the double horns right now. Hey out there in Satanicast land, Stephanie here again, this time to tell you about the Kiskadee Coffee Company. What's a Kiskadee? No, it's not a small bird native to Central America. Wait, yes it is. 
But it's also a beloved coffee shop located at 18 Main Street, Plymouth, Massachusetts, America's hometown. Not only do they serve drip coffee, espresso, cappuccino, but they also roast their own coffee. And friends, it's delicious. We here at El Satanico have chosen to partner with Kiss Kitty not just because of their excellent selection, but because they're locally owned and operated. In this time of crisis, it becomes imperative to support these types of small businesses. So even if you're not from the Massachusetts area, you can still support Kiss Kitty by checking out their online menu at menupix.com or dialing direct 508-830-1410 and ordering whole bean coffees. Again, that's 508-830-1410. Kiss Kitty Coffee. Thank you for your generous support. And welcome back to Satanicast 5000. Still here with Rob Kuhn. And I'm your co-host, Rob Kuhn. <laughs> and... Um, we just bored you to death with our favorite animation. No, I'm sure you probably got something out of it. And I, I was thinking, actually, Rob, that you, when you were talking about that that one show that you couldn't think of the name for, somebody's listening to this podcast right now and was screaming the name into like the phone or whatever they were listening to. So I'm sure you won't need to do 10 hours worth of research to figure it out. I'm sure somebody's going to send us a PM or something like that and let us know what the title was. So I thought for sure it was Voltron, but whatever. No, no, no. There were, I mean, there was a, many of those. We talked about that, but I, but there's, I, I know that that's out there. I know it was on Saturday mornings. I, I have no idea what channel it was, but I remember, I remember if someone's got that, I will, I, I, I will pay for the streaming service where I can rewatch that. And provide episode by episode breakdowns on Satanic Cast. That is my promise to you, loyal listener of the Satanic Cast. That's those are those are those are those are big words, buddy. But um, okay, we'll see. All right, let's, that's that's a contest. Find out what it was, and then Rob will break it down for you for free. So for this form, so like I think the next segment that you want to get into is animation that we did not like. Yes. For whatever reason, as long as it just wasn't a blinding, seething, white hot hatred, um, hate alone can't be the can't be the reason. Right. It can't be. There has to be some sort of rationale behind it. Um, and my rationale for my least favorite anime. Uh, sorry, not anime. This has nothing to do with anime. Um, but my least favorite. Uh, 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 animation ever was every single sequel to a Don Bluth movie. Not just the Don Bluth movies? Don Bluth movies were good. He was a Disney animator. He broke off to his own studio. He did Secret of Nim, All Dogs Go to Heaven, um, the Jewish Mouse movie, um, I always want to call it Five is Finkel, but that was the lawyer from Picket Fences that happened years later. Um, Secret of Nim was the fucking boss, man. And scare the pants shittingly terrifying for me. Yes, yes, it was. Um, every single sequel that he did was worse and worse and worse for for a few reasons. One, it's a blatant cash grab. Yep. I don't believe, and I may, I may be wrong about this, but I don't believe that he signed on to do the sequel to All Dogs Go to Heaven 
two through six or two through four, whatever the fuck. Wait it was. a second. Wait, well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. There was a two through four. I mean, I knew there was like, I knew there was like a sequel or something like that. But they made fucking four of those things. They made. I don't. I can't. I know they made at least one sequel to All, All Dogs Go to Heaven. The animation was terrible. It was a blatant cash grab. It it just rehashed old characters. It didn't introduce anything new. Um, but they had at least three. Jewish mouse sequels, and it it was it was it five ish. Am I making that up? Um, was the se- uh, I, I got the I'm doing the research as we speak. <laughs> yeah, someone's uh, got this somewhere. Um, God, what is the name? I I um no. Okay, so here's what it was. Mouse? Here's what it was. They had uh there were two sequels of American Tale, and That's what that it was. was there was American Tale Five Old Goes West. Um, oh, and God. then there was 13 sequels to The Land Before Time. There were 13 sequels to that fucking movie. The Land oh, Before shit. Time? Yeah, there were 13 sequels. And then... You're making my point. <laughs> right. No, no, no. And I mean, it's... See, that's the thing, though, because this is what sucks about, like big studios that have, like, types, like, funding. This isn't, this isn't, like, uh, I mean, this is an animation with a point. This is an animation that is um, teaching kids or, or, or imparting values that wouldn't no, ordinarily this is, this be imparted. Is, this is just, I'm trying to make as much money as I possibly can. So I can get all stuff these dolls. Right. Yeah. And it's just, and that's, I, that sucks because I hate I hearing bring about the, that shit. I'm going to bring this back to the first segment by saying that was the reason that they didn't, that we didn't get more seasons of justice league and, uh, and Young Justice until recently because they couldn't sell enough dolls based on the Bruce Tim properties. Same thing. Like they sold dogs and they sold my- Jewish mice. And I'm not making that up, by the way. Um, the mouse was Jewish. Um, no, I'm, I'm well aware of that. But And, just... you know, all those dinosaurs. Apparently they sold more of those fucking dinosaur, dinosaurs than anything else. Because then even Pixar had to do with their own dinosaur movie. But... Um, but that was the whole reason. Like they, there wasn't any of this. Like they were all. One was more terrible than the next one, and it, it, it They were just god awful. Yeah. And when you watch as much an, animation as I did, you you realized how terrible all of this was, and you sit and you realize you're not part of you're not part of the target audience for that. But you're just like, well, I gotta. I got to babysit this kid. So I guess we're watching this, but you want right. to, you know, so that, those are my, those are my most hated um, animation movies. I'll let everything else go. If you put me in front of an, a, a, one of those, one of those movies, I swear to God, I will turn into a, 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 a swinging <laughs> rage monster. And just, right. And, just one thing about, and, and, and while we're here, one thing that I sort of, I sort of resented about um, American Tale was, and I mean, I get the idea that it was supposed to be, um, you know, the heartwarming tale of, you know, this, this, this kid that was separated from his parents and he comes to the United States and it was supposed to, you know, sort of illustrate the, right. It was supposed to illustrate the, um, you know, the struggle of the immigrant coming to the United States, but, Here's the thing with the because you know obviously this the 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 mice or fiber was supposed to be of Jewish Ukrainian descent. I always felt like that was kind of presented as not an honest effort to or an honest representation of that particular faith or culture, but more as a selling gimmick. 
yes. to say like this isn't it's like oh well you know this is a culture that you're you're probably not too too familiar with in the united states but let's explore it and let's get you interested instead of an honest effort to sort of say like explore some of the things about you know being um being a being of jewish ukrainian descent which is extremely unique and is is right. probably a unique tale but i don't think it really sort of it went into any kind of serious exploration of that not like say um and they've never made a movie they've never made a movie out of it but there was a, a graphic novel that came out a few years ago which was really great which was called mouse and that's spelled m-a-u-s that, that really came out that was like 82 wasn't it it was right. very right and i'm sort of on the one hand i'm sort of glad that it was never sort of um option for film because I, because I really feel as though that the power that was in, sort of captured in those pages is was is definitely not something that would be easily replicated on a screen. But I just think that when you're when you're talking about animation that is sort of meant to represent a particular culture or a particular faith, you have to be the very care, you have to be very careful about it because it can't like I it can come off as um you know not earnest and like just a dishonest attempt to appeal to a certain kind of like to appeal to a certain base where it's like, oh this is something exotic and we can go look at it like it's like almost like it's like a fucking sideshow and i think it's very disrespectful so that's oh, I mean, well, again yeah. like it's pro like uh, american tale was good overall and i'm not going to completely you know discount it but when you do an american tale five goes west I'm sorry, but I'm going to fucking check out on that one. Agreed. Follow-up question. Follow-up question. Um, Who's doing the interviewing here? Do the, <laughs> would he um, say uh, 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 it's not five or What the hell's the name of the um, American? Say American Tale comes out last year. Summer Blockbuster <laughs> does and it's the same movie. Maybe the animation is a little bit better because we have better tools these days. But let's say it's the same movie and it's hand drawn. Maybe it's built a little bit that way, and it becomes you know it's a spring blockbuster. Yep. You know, right after Easter, right before Avengers Endgame or whatever the fuck superhero movie comes out. That's something for the kids. That is does in this era of outrage culture. Where everybody has a phone and therefore a voice on, and therefore a voice on the yep. internet, does that do, do your good points as this being a stereotype that's being marketed as a gimmick? Does does that surface harder now than it did back in 1983? I don't think that it's. I don't think that it's. It's necessarily um, harder. I think that it would it would actually come off probably as being more earnest. And the reason why I say that is because that's the opposite answer. I can't wait to hear the, I can't wait to hear the reason. So I think, I think a lot of studios um, and again, cause by the time that, you know, American tale um, came out, um, you know, this, that the, my uh, MGM animation who funded this thing basically decide to make this movie and they, they don't make these decisions in a bubble. I mean, they obviously have, you know, audience reactions and they, they test, right. And they test ideas and all that stuff or whatever. And I think that given the current circumstances, they would be taking an enormous risk by creating a, a cartoon, especially a feature length one, especially one with like a large distribution where, you know, the central character is an immigrant. 
And not, and not just speaking to that point where it's like, okay, outrage culture and all that stuff or whatever, but, and I don't want to get into politics, but given the current administration and given the current circumstances with, you know, coronavirus and all that stuff, xenophobia is basically at an all time high. And I don't think a movie about an immigrant right now would really fly too, too well. You're not Um, answering. Stop dodging the question. (laughs) <laughs> My question to you is that movie is American Tale comes out last year in this era of outrage culture. Does it get the accolades or does it get shot down for being a gimmicked stereotype? Both. Who, that's what I want to know. Because now gets, I agree with you. That's exactly gets, what that's exactly the answer. Thank you. It gets it gets both because basically you would there's <sighs> In a couple of episodes, I talked to um, a couple of uh, independent filmmakers, and one of the things that they, you know, that they say, or, or they're going to say, um, I just sort of tip my hat. Uh, we record these things in advance, everybody. Um, <laughs> Wait, what? This isn't live. That's uh, One of the things that they say is that you're not going to make everybody happy, and to sort of expound on that point a little bit. Um, you're going to piss some people off too, especially when you touch any kind of controversial subject, especially when it comes to or stereotypes. I mean, and like any controversial subject where it, whether it's religion, race, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, where somebody's going to feel as though that their, their group or their sort of their, um, their little corner of society isn't represented in the way that they, they, it, that it should be. So yes, um, I correct. think, I think, I think the, I think in this day and age, I think to, to speak to your original point, I think, Given the current, um, you know, the current circumstances in which we live, I don't think a movie like American Tale. Um, I can't believe I'm talking about fucking Five Man. Anyways, <laughs> um, um, Jesus, this is not where this is. I know. I, well, whatever. Whatever. It's cool. No, no, it's totally cool because there's, we're getting, we're minding it for meaning. But yes. I don't think that I don't think that American Tale comes out this in this day and age and is just the genuine wholesome movie that it is i think it gets sort of hyper analyzed and it's like it gets put into all these different sort of gets forced and through all these different holes like does it do do this does it do this does it do this service or whatever and it's kind of sad like that that you can't sort of just enjoy something for what it is however i still think it sucks (laughs) oh yeah no i there's there's nothing worse there is nothing worse than those don bluth sequel movies that are just yeah awful fucking cash grabs with you know and the, and the big studios got involved with those too because you're only allowed so many frames of animation you can only draw so much and it shows yeah it yep. really shows like those yep. old gi joe cartoons that are yeah. just that are that are just blocky you know, the, I mean, the Lego movie that came out three years ago is less blocky than those old G.I. Joe cartoons. Yeah. And no. then the same thing with those Tom Blue sequels. You're only allowed to animate so much before someone says, yeah, move on to the next fucking thing. You can't get the you can't get the, anything smooth anymore. You will you used to until Adobe right. came around. Right. So well, speak, speaking of those old G.I. Joe cartoons, I, you, you have to see and I'm, I'm going to get to what. To, to the to the cartoon that I absolutely cannot stand and it's gonna piss you off. Yeah. But it's fine. We'll get there. But mm-hmm. if you're if you're going back into those old G.I. Joe cartoons, you do yourself a favor and look up the two part season finale. There's no place like Springfield. Shipwreck. Oh, yes. 
shipwreck, shipwreck right? Absolutely loses his fucking mind. Yep. And it ends on like the worst note ever. And when um when Autumn and I saw it in the theater, because they played it at um during the Boston Underground Film Festival here in the city, wow. and um they played it and everybody was watching this. Autumn and I were laughing our asses off, like hysterically. Like people were looking at us like, are you guys okay? And we're like, this is priceless. Watching him lose his mind when the people around him start fucking melting. And then like his family attacks him with a, like his family, the kid, the little kid, no, the wife is like pointing a bazooka at him at the end of the, in in his house. It is so great. It really is. I remember it vividly because I didn't understand it as a kid. Yeah. no idea right and then he walks out of the house and like basically he's you know i think uh lady J or something is like is was anybody hurt or did anybody die and he's like just my dreams and that's how it ends it's yes. the fucking funniest thing i've ever seen in my life yes and i know that sounds yep. like i'm a monster but it's hilarious so well um, you know those two things are can are, are can can exist outside of each other <laughs> that's well it is just a cartoon yeah. anyways <laughs> The, the 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 stuff that I can't stand, um, and they're both the same networks responsible for both of them. And um, you know, you're 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 not going to be happy. But um, the one thing that one show that I absolutely cannot stand, and I'm about to make a lot of enemies, but I don't give a fuck. Um, Bob's Burgers sucks, and I can't stand it. And here's the reason why that I don't like Bob's Burgers. Bob's Burgers feels like the clone of a clone of a clone. And every single time that you clone something, it diminishes just a little bit. It loses a little something. So The mm-hmm. Simpsons starts off in 1989. It's the whole play on, um, you know, the nuclear family or the so-called idea of the, the American nuclear family. Mm-hmm. And for the first, I can hear you grumbling. Let me get to the end. No, no, I don't agree with you. Those are agreeing grumbles. Okay. So it basically... <laughs> um, Bob's Burgers comes along and um, the plot is basically the same. And uh, again, like you could say the same thing about Family Guy, um, which is, uh, you know, clone of a clone. But for me, Family Guy has basically sort of cornered the market on um, lewd and what would be considered be offensive humor. They make, um, you know, jokes that people would generally get pissed off on. But I, I still to this day do not understand what Bob's Burgers niches what it does what it's supposed to be different about what it's different spin on the nuclear family is and i mean i get that you know h john benjamin is a great voice um and he does archer and he's been in a million things and i will say there's an intro to an archer episode where it's bob's burgers that's the best version of bob's burgers i've ever seen because again that's actually something that's that has something to say but for me bob's burgers doesn't really contribute anything in terms of you know, a bunch of like it feels to me. It feels like the the, the rock band Fish. Like I, I mean, it's like quirky, and it's I mean, it's it's decent quality and there's decent scripts, and I'm sure the jokes are funny to somebody or a lot of people. I don't know. My daughter loves it, but it just doesn't really do anything for me. And, and I wish I could respond to it in a way that um, would make me appreciate it, but I just. And the voices, Eugene Merman's voice absolutely drives me up a goddamn wall. It's it like does, this. but in that in, in the context of the show, it's palatable because most of the things that he, the kids are the show. Here's the here's the thing that right. No, I know that. Here's the thing that differentiates Bob's Burgers from Family Guy and from and from The Simpsons and that type of thing. 
There are whole episodes of Fosburgers. There are whole episodes of Fosburgers that are just the kids. The adults are there. They say a few lines, but there are entire plot points that revolves around the kids, and that's what stuff like there are. There are, you know, uh, uh, Bart and Lisa and Maggie's episodes of the Simpsons. I mean, there's like there's it's like a dead equivalent. There's there's two girls and there's a boy. They're slightly older and they have their own trials and tribulations. Everything you're saying right now, I could absolutely say about The Simpsons, where there are episodes that it's just the kids, sure. and there are episodes of Family Guy where it's just the kids. So keep so going. The thing that sets the other thing that sets them apart is Bob's Burgers is the punniest show on television. It is. Oh. It is, and, it, and this will this will go to the subversive category as well, because these uh, uh, all of those the entirety of the, the every single episode starts with at least two puns, and you have to be watching it to get them. And I've paused them a couple of times. Every single episode begins with at least two puns. Yep. The it's the van that pulls up in the front, and it's. Or the- or the, from the, the right hand side of the burger, yeah. Yep. Within twelve seconds of the of the start of this ukulele music, you get two puns, and that is that that's astounding to me. The entire episodes are built around the burger. Some there's the entire episodes are built around the burger of the day, which is another pun. Yep. There's. Always a the, the, it's the punniest show on TV, and that's what keeps me going back. Love me a good pun. Yeah. Um, the show, I can agree. I can agree with you somewhat on most of those things. Um, I think the kids are a little bit older than what normally we see in television, like Brian and Stewie, and uh, I like Meg. Uh, Megan, what's his? The the Chris, Meg and Chris are like high are high school kids. Yep. Um, Bart and Lisa are are, are 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 grade school, and I think that you know these other these other kids are just shy of middle school. Which I think bring, which I think is and and they're and they're brilliant kids too. Like they're never right. played, Bart's always played for a kid who doesn't care and doesn't get good grades. This and the other thing, the kids on Bars Burgers are are fucking brilliant. They're just they deduce things that and they're I mean they're written they're put in situations where they can deduce these things for themselves and this and the other and and but the kids the 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 kids themselves are brilliant and the other part is all of those all the the entire cast of characters have backstories and they explore them all and. It's not 1980s culture. There are entire episodes devoted to raves. The Christmas episodes are devoted to raves. And you're just like, holy crap, they put a rave in this fucking episode? Like, how did they do that? You know? So that's what kind of sets that's what kind of sets it apart for me. And I just don't feel like they've rehashed a whole lot of things. It's it's not South Park Simpsons did it, you know? There are a lot of there are a lot of. Uh, I just don't feel like they have done that because it kind of takes place in modern times, and maybe The Simpsons did a rave, and I missed that sh- missed that show, and you know, I, I, right? 
so that's that's the reason I can tell you that's what Bob's Burgers does for me. Okay, I mean ukuleles and dad jokes. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, and that's see that's the thing though because and and one thing I want to say about like when you have something that doesn't really click for you or whatever, and this is an important. Um, this is an important point to make, especially with um, with just media in general and television and all that stuff or whatever. Um, and um, I think we'll we'll leave it here. But the one thing that I want to say this is, you know, when we when we respond to um, animation and um, you know other things like works or or whatever, our um, our response is generally sort of informed by how we were brought up our culture um you know basically just there's a certain aesthetic that appeals to i think every single individual and just because like you know bob's burgers um doesn't appeal to me or you know rob and i don't like don bluth sequels or you know red and stippy was the coolest or you know uh star blazers was something that you know whatever blah 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 um the important things is that you do respond to specific things and you do get something a little bit more than just watching shapes on a TV screen. And I think we can all agree upon that because um, it's, it's, and to go back to the beginning of the show, the um, when you have studios like Disney and you have Warner brothers and you have sort of these corporation giants that are sort of selling animation that may or may not have a message or two in there, but it's really all about getting asses in the seats and generating revenue and getting people to go to theme parks and stuff like that. The true spirit of animation and what can be, you know, achieved by it, what can be accomplished by it is lost. And um, that's why I think it was important to have this, this episode straight off the bat, because it's important to discuss that in the sense that everything is so dominated now by these sort of these these corporate giants and it becomes much more imperative to us as consumers to look for these things and to look for things that sort of fall under the radar um and and take those in and appreciate them and and definitely support the artists animators and whoever works with these shows so um rob I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It has been truly an honor. And um, Stop it. would you come on back at, at a later time? Well, we have to discuss my hourly rate and, um, you know, the pajama fee um, and, you know, the, 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 you know, whatever's in my rider, like no green M&M. So we can work something out. We'll have your people call my people. We'll see what we we'll see we get done. Will do. Okay. Robert Kuhn. <laughs> Subversion of animation. Rob, thanks again for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Wally. Say Satanicast. Okay. Uh, another quick message, and we will be right back. Satanicast 5000 goes on. Satanicast 5000. And we're back with Satanicast 5000. Dave the Owl is still on the other side of the room, glaring at me menacingly. Dave, you and I are going to have this out after the podcast, and it's going to be nothing nice. Now, I'm going to finish this, and you stay right there, pal. Anyways, time for another segment from our friend Anne Ho Boucher. She is the author of Mercy Hospital and now entering Silver Hollow, 
both novels, both on Amazon. Go out there, fucking buy them and support this wonderful person. Um, she has been so kind to lend uh, a couple of readings from her work for the past couple of uh, podcasts. And um, we're happy to have her again. So another trip into the world of fiction with Anne Hogue Boucher. Hello, I'm Anne Hogue Boucher, and you're listening to Satanicast 5000. This is an excerpt from my short story, Exit 1042. You can find it on Amazon.com or via my website, SilverHollowStories.com. The long stretch of road had been too much for Derek. He closed his eyes and leaned back into the passenger headrest. The hum of the engine and rubber on pavement were only broken by the sound of Sarah's fingers tapping lightly on the steering wheel. Tap, 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 tap. He knew the rhythm well, once with the first finger, twice with the second, three times with the third, and on through to the fourth. Normally, her sonorous drumming annoyed him. He smiled. Today, it was strangely comforting. He couldn't think why. Perhaps it was because it reminded him of his daughter Alice and the silly, OCD way she would do things, like lining up her dolls by height or counting out her sunflower seeds and then dividing them up by ones, twos, and threes. Derek frowned and closed his eyes. For a moment, his daughter was alive again in his mind, a mere glimmer. But inside that flash, folded tight as an origami puzzle, lay all the pain in the world. Sweet Alice, wise beyond her seven years. White cotton pantsuit with tiny blue flowers for buttons. Blue flowers to match those in the favorite field she played in. Fat bumblebees buzzing from flower to flower. How could he have been so naive? The highway had always been too close. He grimaced and opened his eyes, hearing a loud semi's horn fading. You okay? Sarah asked, barely audible over the hum of the engine. Yeah, I'm good, he nodded. His voice croaked as he spoke. He coughed uncomfortably to clear his throat. Hungry, he added. That's all. Her hand left the steering wheel and squeezed his. Sarah pointed to the exit. 10.42, she said. Next exit is 62 miles and we're running out of gas, she told him. There's a sign back there for a diner and fuel station. We could grab a bite before we get to the hotel. Derek agreed, falling silent. Alice hadn't died in a car accident. Alice had drowned in the lake and he hadn't been able to save her. His brain killed her thousands of times in different milieus. Torture by the sea, torture by abduction, shots fired, flash floods, hantavirus. Years of therapy changed nothing. The coffin was sealed, and unless there was an afterlife, his daughter was lost. Unreal, Sarah said, getting out of the car. As the door slammed, Derek thought he heard the same fading semi-horn again. Noisy. Traffic pulling in. Cars almost on top of each other for space. And a large tour-style bus parked in the front made him wonder if they'd have to wait for a table. 
His stomach gurgled in disagreement. Food. Now. Even with the smell of hot rubber and gasoline outside. A hypertestament to the 1950s soda shop that seemed too glossy and new to be real in its desert setting. Frozen in time. Like Alice. Shaking off the thought as best he could, the last thing he wanted was to drag Sarah down on their trip. A friendly middle-aged waitress with a buffant greeted them. We're kind of full, sugar, but just sit wherever you like. A couple of tables are still open. The smells of spices and comfort food wafting in the air helped his mood. Sliding into a booth at the end of the wall, sunny and cozy, Sarah wrinkled her nose, and Derek thought she might smell the underlying gasoline and hot rubber smell that seemed to be permeating his nostrils. Not constantly, but an occasional whiff. Looking around, he figured it was from the door that kept swinging open as people ebbed and flowed. Sarah snorted, nose still wrinkled, and the noise of a fussing baby clued him in. Sarah snorted, nose still wrinkled, and the noise of a fussing baby clued him into the source of her irritation. He smiled softly. Babies cried. That's what they did. Simple as that. As he glanced over to them, the baby quieted, soothed by its mother's ministrations. Staring at him wide-eyed, the baby put a fist in his mouth and chewed on it. Derek chuckled. Once the baby had quieted, Sarah's face smoothed. For all the organized chaos in the room, the two were quiet. They sat in the comfortable, overstuffed pleather seats. They sat in the comfortable, overstuffed pleather seats, cherry red against the jet black enamel table. Shielded from the rest of the landscape, the diner seemed close off to the world, a kind of oasis in the desert. As he was taking it all in, the waitress delivered their menus and walked off. Derek looked down to read his choices, but was interrupted by a sharp, sudden gasp from Sarah. She was making herself into a tight ball of a woman, pushing herself into the corner of the booth, face twisted in revulsion and dismay. Sarah, what's wrong? he asked her, reminded of the time a wolf spider crawled onto her arm, how she jumped, sweating and shaking, face pale coppery smell of fear leaving a tang in the air. Calming her had taken hours after the spider had been banished to the outdoors. She looked at him as if he sprouted a giant goiter. What? The baby! The baby! Her voice was a harsh whisper. She looked back and Derek followed her gaze. A happy baby smiled at him and cooed over its mother's shoulder, then began chewing on its fist again. What? The baby! It... Sarah trailed off, shaking her head as if to clear it. She rubbed her eyes. What? He demanded, voice raised this time. All the color had drained from her face, and the muscles in Derek's back and shoulders tensed. I just... I, I don't... The baby looked like half its face was mangled, she hissed at him. Derek's jaw dropped but he snapped it back. Reaching out, he patted her bare arm, the smooth skin seeming to yield under his touch. He heard a long sigh escape her lips, breath shaking, then becoming smooth once more. 
It's okay. Maybe you're seeing things from all the driving and low blood sugar, he ventured, voice low, hoping the mother wouldn't overhear them. The mother began bottle-feeding her baby, the smell of powdery perfume dancing in the air as she moved from diaper bag to table. Sarah's brows knitted. I don't know. It just... It looked like its face was scraped, like skinned. Shuddering, she took a packet of sugar out of the smooth chrome holder and downed it. Maybe you're right, but I've never actually hallucinated from low blood sugar before. The smell of hot rubber and the sound of another semi-horn entered the room and left just as quickly. Derek thought of mentioning it, but a gurgling stomach interrupted him. Color returning to Sarah's face, she peered at the menu, and Derek followed suit. He wanted meatloaf. Meatloaf reminded him of happy little hands, mixing up the ground beef, playing in a carcass clay, shaping the loaf. The clatter of dishes, the deep red of the ketchup, the smell and tang of the loaf, a round, smiling face as she asked for seconds. Whenever he went somewhere after Alice died, that was what he ordered, his own little ritual to remember her with a smile. Each slice of the loaf a headstone for the cow, a memorial of living. Thank you for listening. Now back to Wally Quigley and Satanicast 5000. Hey folks, Joshua Morrow here. We have so much more going on at El Satanico. In two weeks, Wally welcomes Justin Julio to Satanicast 5000. They're going to talk about the 16th best horror movies of all time by people who don't like horror movies. And then, in episode four, our own admin, Danielle, co-hosts Satanicast 5000 in Not the Bees! Not the Bees! Our tribute to B-movies over the years. We're also pleased to announce our Monday Midnight Mayhem series. This is the most extreme that cinema has to offer, and we are pleased to bring these films to you. On April 20th, we have the 2008 film, Martyrs. And on April 27th, Cannibal Holocaust. Please be advised, these films are not for the faint of heart. Not really up for Nightmares for Life? We also run Saturday morning cartoons. Every Saturday, we crank out all of the favorites from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So grab your sugariest cereal and just kick back with us. Yeah, we're kind of all over the place. But, hey, we're never boring, so if you're a member, we look forward to seeing you. And if not, join us. Okay, boys and girls, we've come to the end of another episode of Satanicast 5000. This is the closing credits. This is where I thank the people that were helped in the production of this particular episode. Not you, Dave. No, no. Yeah, face the wall. Ass. Anyways, thank you to Josh Morrow, Stephanie Quigley, Rob Kuhn, and Anne Hogue Boucher for their contributions to this episode. Without you, there is no podcast. So uh, thank you so much for, for, for all your efforts. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again in another couple of weeks. Me and Justin Julio are going to talk about the 16 and a half best horror movies of all time. Or 16. The 16 and a half was a stupid joke. And I think I'm going to drop it now. Uh <laughs> But it's about, uh, it's not necessarily about 
uh, the 16 and a half best horror movies. It is about the best that the genre has to offer. The reason why I asked, and here's the, I'm going to let you in, spoiler alert, here's the theory. I had a theory that the best horror movies of all time by people who don't really like horror movies and the best horror movies by people who do like horror movies actually line up. And um, as it turns out, they do. So it's evidence that the best that this genre has to offer transcends the genre. Wow. Mind fucking blown. Anyways, so we'll see. We'll do that in two weeks. And then after that, it's not the bees, not the bees with Danielle. And then uh, there's more on the way. Like I said, 10 episodes and we're only on episode two. I can barely contain myself. So I'm Wally Quigley. This is Satanicast 5000. I will see you in two weeks. Take care. Bye-bye. So what? Big deal.